The Bible reading for this message is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, from verse 1 to verse 10. It would be great if you could push pause on this video and go and have a read-through of that first. This is also part two of a two-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one, it would actually be great if you go back and first listen to that before you listen to this. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, from verse 1 to verse 10. We've been thinking about how it is that we will behave in a time like this that we live in. How will we behave when we find ourselves in distress, or in weakness, or in hardships, or in various forms of suffering, or trials, or even temptations? What does faith look like, and how does it work itself out in the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? How will our faith be seen in our behavior in times of calamity, distress, and suffering? Paul's been experiencing weakness for the last 14 years after he has this incredible vision. The Lord gives him this thorn in his flesh that he's had to live with. So let's jump straight in and look a little bit at that thorn. The thorn, it literally means a spike, a javelin, or a stake. The thorn was debilitating and it made Paul weak and feeble. It was something that was in his flesh so that it had a, a physical uh, element to it uh, in his life, so that he couldn't function at the level that he wanted to function. His abilities uh, were weakened, and they were brought low. Because of that thorn, people had to assess him by what they could see, which was obvious weakness, and by what they heard him preaching, which was the gospel. And because of that, Paul was thrilled he was actually ecstatic. He was content, is what he says, because he didn't want to be thought of more highly than he ought to. He understood that what was at work in him wasn't him. He wasn't great or wonderful. He knew that he was prone to pride. He could become easily overtaken by the sin of conceit. And so what this thorn did was it made people lay aside Paul so that they could hear the gospel message that he was preaching. Now, not knowing what the thorn was means that every Christian since can share in some shape with this experience, that we can all draw on the grace and the power of Christ. It's interesting to note that Paul, when he suffers physically, isn't so interested in the medical diagnosis as he is in its spiritual significance. That's something that we see in the book of James, James 5, uh, where James says if someone's sick, they should call the leaders of the church. They should confess their sins. They should uh, examine their lives in this time of sickness. The psalmist says something similar uh, a number of times, maybe most notably in Psalm 6, uh, where he seems to be in some lying in his bed in tears and agony, and he's crying out to the Lord. Perhaps we too ought to more often pause and reflect for a little bit longer on the spiritual significance when we find ourselves in positions of weakness. That's not to say that every time there will be something or that we're always going to find something in our weakness, but perhaps if we were more in tune at this level with the way that the Lord works, we would find ample opportunity to give thanks in those debilitating times for what the Lord is doing spiritually on our behalf as he works in us his kindness and goodness. 
Paul had had this incredible spiritual uh, experience, this revelation that was a once-off. But then for the next 14 years, in an ongoing regular basis that hindered his ministry as a direct consequence of that high spiritual experience, the Lord gave Paul this thorn. The Lord was the source of both the vision and the thorn. The Lord gave the gift and the instrument. Uh, the Lord did this to save Paul from himself. And sometimes he does the same thing to us. We too will live with some thorn that the Lord has given us because he knows that that is the best thing for us at that time to stop us because we are prone in our self-centeredness and our selfishness to think more of ourselves than we ought to. Uh, our sin, our danger zone might not be pride and conceit, but every single one of us has a danger zone. And because the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves, and he's working towards his good purposes, he will bring along an instrument in order to save us from ourselves. Now that instrument uh, is used by God, but it can also be used of Satan. Uh, the cross of Christ is a wonderful example of something that was used to accomplish God's purposes, but was also uh, used by Satan. It was the point in time where the promise from Genesis 3 that the serpent would strike his heel and that God would crush the serpent's head, that was fulfilled at that point. One of the, the, the first paradox we see here of the Christian life is that God is working his purpose of grace and power while Satan works towards his evil purpose. And the gift of God can also be the instrument of Satan. Uh, that is the war that's taking place for our hearts and for our souls. So in the wonderful experiences, Satan will work to bring us pride and self-fulfillment. God works to bring us humility. In suffering, Satan works to bring us to despair and to distrust the goodness of God. And God brings us to depend on him and to truly know him. You see, right in the middle, God is there offering his goodness and his power. And that's really the context of 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, where Jesus comes to Paul and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. These are Jesus' words to Paul. They're his promise to Paul in order to be helpful in bringing the cross of Christ into his everyday experience. But they're also words to us because they wouldn't be in the scripture the way they are if they weren't also a promise that comes to you and I today. So this morning, this is your promise. So let me ask a few questions of the passage that I think it answers with absolute clarity. Firstly, what exactly is it that the Lord Jesus says? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. Now, it's important to understand that the Lord is not interested in weakness for the sake of weakness. He doesn't give you thorns because he enjoys watching you suffer. The Lord knows that in weakness, we really come to the end of ourselves. But weakness is the space into which we can really begin to understand God's goodness and his grace. 
It's in weakness that grace becomes existentially important to us, where we learn to live in a practical way. And remember, we're not talking here about saving grace. We're talking about this other grace that comes to us in our present situation. This grace that flows down the mountain in these streams and come to us in our time of needs in exactly the right amount and in exactly the right way that are the promises of God that we know uh, through his word, that we experience through our relationship with him in prayer, uh, that we obtain through the means of grace, uh, through the Lord's Supper where we are fed. Those are all part of God's grace to us. So it's not just that we are saved by grace, we are, but then God sustains us by his grace, and he enables us to endure by giving us grace, sufficient grace, grace that is without measure, uh, grace that is vast, grace that is deep, grace that is ongoing, grace that is never ending. And it's in this weakness that that grace uh, comes to us and that we learn to take hold of it. So last week I asked you, how will you behave? That the Lord is interested in how you will respond to your weakness. So how are you responding to your weakness? Because that shows up what's going on in your heart. Are you trusting in the Lord or are you trusting in yourself? Are you depending on the Lord or are you depending on yourself? Does it lead you to cry out like David in Psalm 16 verse 10? You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You know, you look around and your weakness, like, you realize, like, I, there's no one to help me but the Lord. Do you cry out like that? Or Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 25, when he cries out, Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on the earth I desire besides you. It's only when you get to that point of weakness and you can finally acknowledge that you are weak and powerless and feeble and at the end of yourself, that you can actually begin to cry these things and you can change the trajectory of your life to live like this. Or even Paul himself in Philippians 3 verse 8 where he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is lost because the worth of Jesus surpasses all else. Is Jesus worth so much to you that everything else in all of your life is lost? because of his surpassing greatness, because he's so wonderful, because his grace has come to you and is sufficient for you. You see, friends, the greatest good in the whole world is God himself, knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ, not just knowing about God, not just acknowledging God, actually knowing him on a personal, intimate level in a relationship that is ongoing. That's what it means to feel his glory, to sense his love, to experience his presence. When we experience God in this way, we are so full of him that we desire nothing else but him, that we discover that God is the only all-satisfying good, which is why he is the greatest good. So what does your weakness reveal about yourself and are you letting God work in your life to accomplish his purpose? For when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says. This verse is the promise to us. And this sufficiency is so great and so boundless 
that no suffering can ever outstrip the grace of God. Nothing that you ever go to will go beyond the grace of God because his grace will always be sufficient to meet your needs. It means the greater the difficulty, the greater our experience of grace. Not that we deserve it, it's grace. And it's deeply personal to Jesus. It's my grace, something that Jesus gives to us as his free gift. So that's the first thing. Uh, what exactly is it that the Lord Jesus says? The second thing that we need to ask is, uh, why does Jesus say it? Well, Paul had found himself like this in this position for 14 years, pinned to the ground with this stake in his flesh. And it's helpful for us to be clear on this because Christianity isn't about being stoic. It's not about gritting your teeth and just uh, bearing with as though all will just be okay. It's not about an opportunity for you to demonstrate your vast inner resources or your EQ. Suffering is not good in and of itself. It's not part of God's good design. Although his pattern is suffering now and then glory in the future, we do still pray for deliverance. Jesus speaks the words in verse 9. Okay, zone in. Jesus speaks the word in verse 9 because Paul prays for one thing and the Lord has something better. How many times does that happen to you? When you prayed for one thing, but the Lord had something better. Or maybe you haven't even recognized that God does that. And you've prayed for one thing, and he hasn't given it to you. And you're like, where is it? I've prayed for it. And it hasn't come. But actually, he was giving you something else all along that was so much better that you needed so much more desperately. You see, Paul prays for deliverance. But the Lord wants to give him dependence. Dependence comes about as we rely on his power in our weakness. The heavenly Lord believes that his grace is more than enough so that we might be satisfied in the midst of weakness. The Lord knows that it's better for us to have a thorn in the flesh and to depend on his grace than it is for us to be strong and delivered. He does want us to be strong, but not in the way that we often think. He wants us to be strong in weakness, to have this power of the Spirit uh, resting on us. Here's a second paradox of the Christian life. I don't know any growing Christian well who does not feel their own weakness acutely, who doesn't feel their own inadequacy, who doesn't feel their own struggle, who doesn't have their own unique set of temptations, who isn't fighting their sin, who doesn't feel hard-pressed on every front, and who hasn't had thoughts of giving up. And it's into that, to you today, wherever you might be, that he comes and says, my grace is sufficient for you as a mom. My grace is sufficient for you as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a child, as a friend, in whatever. My grace is sufficient for you in whatever it is that you are going through right now. Because you know something, I sent the thorn and I give the grace. This is where God's power is at work. And that is why Jesus says these things. Thirdly, when does the power come to us? When do we know the grace and the power of God? 
Well, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Both of those phrases are put in the present tense. And, and, and the term that's actually used to describe them is the timeless, durative presence. So for 14 years, this had been ongoingly um, afflicting Paul in his life. Constantly, we're not sure what that means, daily, weekly, monthly, at some sort of regular interval, randomly at various times. Each time, the grace of God was timeless and durative in its presence in his life. Because each time that Paul was afflicted, God's grace comes to him. Jesus' grace is sufficient. And the power of the Lord has been made complete in his weakness. Each time it came in weakness, Paul still preached the gospel. Paul still experienced the inexhaustible goodness of the Lord Jesus that he had come to an experience in a way that would just never run out. You see, the grace was sufficient because the power of Christ was being made perfect. The power of Christ in the gospel to save people, the power of the cross, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead was the power was that was now at work in Paul and his preaching. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now the power that, it is, that is at work in you. It's power that keeps on arriving in my life forever because his death guarantees me everlasting life. His grace saved me. Well, his grace will also sustain me and his power will be at work in my life because my inheritance is secure. Grace will always be enough to get you through whatever your situation because your eternity is secure. So stop relying on yourself and your brains and your intellect and your power and your strength and learn to accept your weakness and to accept this grace that comes from Christ, whose power is working in you and is being made perfect and complete and fulfilled in your weakness. And that is what the cross of Christ looks like in the ongoing living of the Christian life. The grace and power of the Christian life don't come to us all at once at the beginning of the Christian life, even though we'd like that. It comes to us constantly, and ongoingly, daily, hourly, moment by moment. It doesn't necessarily even come consistently, you know, five, five units here and five units here and five units here. It comes when we need it. And it's not like the weakness comes and then we call out and then the power comes. The weakness comes and the grace and power are there to meet the weakness. It's, it, the problem is often that we're just unaware of it. We're unaware uh, that God is giving us the power to continue and press on. Uh, we don't see it. And, we, and so we, because we don't understand it, we don't experience it the way that we're supposed to. Recognizing God's sufficient grace at work in our weakness all the time requires the eyes that only faith can give. Sometimes that grace comes in circumstances. Sometimes it comes through people. Sometimes it comes in God wrapping his arms around us and us experiencing his presence in amazing ways. However it comes, Jesus says, my grace is what sustains you. It what, it's what holds you in your faith. It's what enables you to be steadfast on the journey home. 
Why does he say at the end of verse 9 that he will boast all the more gladly of my weakness? Well, it's so that the power of Christ may rest upon him ongoingly in him, filling him up. You see, this isn't a bumper sticker verse. It's not a coffee mug or a fridge magnet or an Instagram post. It is so much more. When we understand the thorn and the context of the thorn, then we understand that the promise and the power of the Lord comes to us when we experience the thorn and it daily rests on us. Here is where we experience the presence of Jesus as the thorn goes in, so that when I am weak, well, actually, it's only then that I am really strong. So you got the what, you got the why, you got the when. Well, let's talk about the where. Where is the power of Christ most seen? And I'm going to get straight to the point. The power of Christ is most seen in a life lived in ongoing dependence on him. See, there's another paradox of the Christian life. There's the upside-down nature of the Christian life, that the power isn't seen in big, massive, high spiritual experiences. It's not seen in the numbers. It's seen when one individual is living their life in ongoing dependence on Jesus Christ. You see, we've come to know God through the foolishness of the gospel. And what a foolish message it is to the world to think that the world could be saved or would be saved by a man dying hung on a tree. You see, that's always going to be a stumbling block in our world that loves power. It loves power and power. No, here in God's economy is power in weakness. So where do we look for the power of God? Where do we see it at work? We see it at work in individuals who are weak and who have come to accept that weakness and let God work in it. When we are weak, the power of God is being made perfect. God works through weakness. He's working through your weakness, whatever that weakness might be. Perhaps you've also prayed for deliverance, but because God knows you better than you know yourself, he's chosen to give you dependence instead. You're listening to this, and you know what your thorn is right now. Well, I want you to look back at previous thorns and see how God's grace was actually at work in your life, making you strong in those times of weakness. And now I want you to hear these words all over again, with all the added depth of meaning, to understand what you're going through right now, and to know that right now, His grace is still sufficient. Last question. Who? Who gives this grace and who is it for? Well, firstly, Jesus Christ is the one who gives the grace, not God the Father. In verse 1, the vision is of Jesus. In verse 8 of chapter 12, Jesus is the one to whom Paul prays. And in verse 9, Jesus is the one who said to me. It's Jesus is the one who says these words. And this is a tremendous truth. You see, Jesus understands pain and weakness. He understands what it means to depend on the power of God. He descended from a far greater height than we ever will. His experience of weakness was far greater than we could ever imagine. His flesh was literally pierced by thorns, taking our sins and being abandoned for us. His death is the one death in history where power is made perfect in weakness and brought to completion in weakness. It's through the weakness of the cross that the power of God makes him who knew no sin 
to become sin for us, and where we who were sinners can become the righteousness of God. It's through the weakness of the cross that you're saved. And it's because we are united with Christ in his death that the same power and grace are ours now through Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. He is the one who says to us this morning, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the path that he walked is now the path that he calls us to walk, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross in all of its weakness and all of its foolishness and to follow him. And when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient, he is in effect drawing alongside you and with comforting words, whispering in your ear. I have faced a much deeper darkness. I have been through more excruciating pain. I have died a more deadly death. My rejection was richer. My abandonment more, was more complete. I was pierced for your transgressions. But here is my grace, my measureless, boundless, boundless lost grace that is sufficient to get you through whatever it is that you're going through, whatever thorn it is that I have put in your life, because I did this for you. And here, here is my grace. When the thorn pushes in, we usually uh, turn to God and say, why are you doing this to me, God? And the truth is that we usually don't know the answer. We can't work it out. But what we do know, what you do know is Christ's promise here is for us. So who speaks the word? Jesus. Who is the word for? Well, yes, it's to Paul, but it's also for us. That's why it's written here like this. And here is yet another paradox of the Christian life. From earlier on in this message, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts, and it is transforming us so that we become more like the image of Jesus. But although we have it in our hearts, this treasure that we have is in jars of clay. That is our life. Our, our life is like a jar of clay. It is weak and fragile and it is broken. And, and we are so immersed in our culture that we actually want the absolute opposite of the Christian life. We would love to look strong and hide the mess of our life. Uh, we feel that we have the right, the right to an easy, comfortable, and relatively pain-free existence where we can fulfill our potential and obtain our dream. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified in weakness and now lives by the power of God, lives in us and through us, and he satisfies us with his grace. And sometimes the glory that is contained in our weak jars that God wants to get out into the world, we're holding on to it so tightly and we're holding the cracks together so tightly so that it can't get out. And so God has to come and open it up by piercing that jar with a thorn so that his glory can get out. Because where is this seen? Well, it's seen in the life lived in absolute dependence in every moment on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, as we end our time together, know that whatever your thorn is, Jesus comes to you and he says, 
my grace is sufficient for you. That wherever your weakness is, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is now at work and is available to you. Let me encourage you to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, holding on to this promise that his grace is sufficient. Listen to these words from Isaiah 41. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or these words from Psalm 31, verse 23. Love the Lord with all love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Friends, I don't know why you have the particular thorn that you have, but I do know that Christ's grace is sufficient for whatever that thorn is. And you need to learn to not just embrace that thorn, but to acknowledge that weakness. For it's only in that weakness that God's strength is able to come and to lift you up and to carry you like on eagle's wings. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you will boast all the more gladly of your weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on you and that for the sake of Christ, you will learn to be content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, even with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we have listened to your word would be pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for this promise given to us through Jesus that his grace is sufficient for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to cling to that promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.